The Boys Don't Try podcast, episode four, mental health. Welcome everybody to the Boys Don't Try podcast. Here we are, it's hot, it's the height of summer, uh, we're recording at half term. Uh, are you enjoying the weather boys? Yeah, yeah, I'm loving it. I say that. I say that every time you ask this opening question. <laughs> Actually, I've had a really sh- couple of days. Do you, want to talk- <laughs> Do you want to hear about that? <laughs> Perhaps not now. Maybe later. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm, I'm loving the weather, but I've had an awful day as well. Um, but I did, I did, I did have, have some moment of satisfaction at the end of the day when I got out my my, my hedge cutters and I cut the hedge and I mowed the lawn. So I started feeling uh, all right again. Manly. Manly labour, like a, like, like a real man, yeah, yeah. Finally, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's the sort of thing. That's the sort of thing my dad used to do. That hack the shit out of a hedge. <laughs> it's interesting that you say that because I did something momentous this week. At the age of forty-one years old, I bought my first toolbox. Wow, amazing! I've always had tools. Don't get me wrong. I've always had. Of course, tools. You have, mate. No one's they're, doubting that. No one's doubting that. They've, they've just been all over the place, but now they're all in one place. And if someone says. Have you got a pair of needle nose pliers? I know exactly where to go and look because that's where they'll be. But my dad will be very pleased that I finally got. I just love that that you just you just had to tell us that you've always I've always had tools, lads. Just so you know, I've always <laughs> you know I'm a proper well, man. Okay. I've always had tools. Let, yeah, but the thing is, I'm not a proper man in any way. I'm terrible at DIY. I don't have. I've at 41. I've just got my first toolbox. It's interesting though, isn't it? That I tried to cover it. Do we do we often try and cover these uh, our non-masculine tendencies? Do we try and prove to people that we're manly by the stuff that we do and the stuff that we say? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really funny that uh, I I used to be absolutely abysmal at DIY. I never had tools as as well, and and never had a toolbox or anything. And I used to get away with it and you know, rationalise it by thinking. Oh, well, you know, I can pay someone else to do it. That's fine. I'm, I'm pretty busy and so on. But every single time that Definitely. a guy... pay a, guy, a man. Always yeah. pay a man. But the man used to come round and do some really simple job and he'd be like almost pitying me, taking money off me. And I'd stand there feel, <laughs> feeling worse paying someone. And I just thought, no, actually, I'm going to have to learn how to do pretty basic stuff. Otherwise, I'm going to be even more humiliated. Well, the way I used to justify it to my wife was always, look, I can do it, but it'll take me forever and it'll be done badly. Or we can pay the man to do it in half an hour and it will be spot on. I'm dreadful at DIY, but um, there are other manly things that I'm very good at. Uh, Such as? Riding a bike with no hands. (laughs) (laughs) Do do you have your arms crossed while you're doing it? (laughs) I literally have it down to a T. (laughs) So uh, at 34, you'd think I'd be above it. But I don't know, does a safety warning have to go out here? I, was just, I think any of these things that we do, these kind of silly little things that you do to try to prove that you're a real man, and obviously we're talking in, in, in stereotypes here, um, that all of those things should come with this kind of warning because ultimately you end up doing daft stuff to yourself, don't you, by, by doing these petty little things. We're, we're not talking serious things here, are we? We're not, we're not talking kind of you know, harassment and fighting and, uh, and, 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 and kind of drinking yourself to death or anything. that We're talking about silly little daft stuff i think you're right mark i mean i i have to get at christmas i get my neighbor to come and put up the fairy lights over my house because i won't go up a ladder i'm not i I don't know how to use ladders safely 
I'm not doing that. How does your wife look at you, James, when that's happening? (laughs) Hey, she looks at the bank balance and sees that I'm providing, and that'll do. Oh, wow. Okay, so look at that. Look at my defence. Look at my defence. You're so manly. It's amazing how... Okay, I'm now going to list all the non-masculine things that I do to, to make up for it. I love the music of Gary Barlow. You can't tell me that boy doesn't write a good tune. A Million Love Songs was a banger, wasn't it? He did that when he was <laughs> he did that when he was seventeen, apparently. I was thinking his later stuff. You know that the Stardust soundtrack. Matt, oh, I have not. <laughs> Matt, you've Matt, you've got very uh, you've got very manly taste in music, haven't you? You you like some uh, some real. Uh, I, yeah. I have a I've diverse taste. Yeah, I mean, I like boy bands, don't I? Yeah. What's manlier <laughs> than a band or a genre that literally has um, a word for male in it? boy band you know that's pretty yeah. manly I think yeah yeah. Uh, yeah yeah I love I love all that I love I love pop music um, atomic kit like, I love I love it all and I've got no there's no shame <laughs> did in you that. sorry you heart you heart got halfway through saying atomic kitten and then backed out <laughs> pulled out you? that's <laughs> only that's only because I only love half of their stuff they're, they're like <laughs> Are, the, are, are Atomic Kit and the band whose lineup has now changed beyond all recognition? They've had like seventeen. No, that's in, that's, in that's, that's Sugar, sugar Babes. Oh, okay. Well done for, you, for having superior pop knowledge, fellas. Yeah, good. Yeah. What are these other silly things that we do? Uh, do you know what the thing? I, the thing that I think makes me a man, or makes me feel like a man, whenever we're driving anywhere, any sort of family trip. No, no, I drive. Mummy's in the passenger seat. <laughs> I'm driving. <laughs> we could be. I mean, I drove the length of France in a day without a break just because, no, I'm doing it. Jesus. I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're right. I don't know why I'm laughing because these are, yeah. It's, it's per- I mean, it's for me, it? um, I, I remember pushing a pram. There's a way a man should push a pram. I have this theory. So it, Is there? Yeah. Because if you push a pram the conventional way, it looks really girly and no one will like you. Um, so... When you're pushing a pram, what you've got to do is, right, so right hand, yeah, right hand, one only only your right hand, never do it two hands, right? There's a common theme here, isn't there? Riding bikes, pushing prams, never, <laughs> never the full two hands, right? Yeah, Put your, don't do DIY one-handed, though, that'll end badly. Put your arm right out and push the pram almost sideways on and outwards as far... Can you see what I'm doing? We're on Zoom, everyone, so you can... And you push it, and as if to say, yes, I had this baby, but I would never be so girly as to have actual feelings for it. I don't want it near me. <laughs> it's um, a literal arm's length. I think for, for me, my, my, my way of signalling that I'm a, I'm a real man, it comes to food choice. Um, so, so when it comes down to steak or, or meat, I've got I eat ridiculous amounts of meat because I'm, I'm a caveman, obviously. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of reverting back to my, yeah, my activism. So that means that I, I inevitably have to eat it raw, um, not rare, raw. It's got to be raw. Uh, and, and also, obviously, when, when I order a curry, I've got to have something that's going to cause me physical pain. It can't be enjoyable. <laughs> it has to be something... <laughs> That hopefully yeah. it's going to be yeah, yeah. painful, but I'm not going to cry because obviously boys don't cry either. For years, I insisted on having rare steaks because that was what my dad said I had to have, and, and that was what I saw what I saw James Bond having and that sort of stuff. And then I've realised I, I, I'm not talking. We should go. No, no steak should ever be well done. Do you know what I mean let's not be philistines about it? But. 
There should be no raw meat in it. Uh, pink, pink, yes, but not raw. I mean, I don't, I don't, still don't quite get how anybody can eat a steak blue. That I find that astonishing. You, you'll I get can, there. I when can you, do that. Yeah. Yeah. And and and, and the, do you know how I eat a steak? No hands. <laughs> <laughs> So we're talking today about um, mental health, um, and it's a chapter that you wrote, Matt. And you you open the chapter with what I can only describe as some astonishing statistics. Do you just want to briefly give us some of those stats? Because for those who haven't read the book or or, or maybe did it a while ago, I think they're well worth revisiting. Yeah, I mean, we'll leave we'll leave the one that everybody knows to the end. The one that really shocked me was. Um, especially given the connotations of, of this, I guess, this group of people uh, with masculinity and raw masculinity and the stereotypes that people bring to it. Um, Irish traveller um, children, seven times more likely than others to to kill themselves. Um, I think the stuff about um, bisexual and gay boys, they're 60% um, more likely to have thought about taking their own lives. And, of course, there's the class gap. The, those in the bottom ten percent of um, society, in terms of, of, of wealth, are twice as likely to, to kill themselves as those in the top ten percent of society. And the one that everybody talks about, and the one that everybody knows, is um, obviously that that men under the age of forty, seventy five percent of suicides are, are from are from those guys. You know, um, which is Shocking. I don't even think it is shocking now. It's something we hear all the time. 75% of suicides are men. And um, we just kind of take it for granted, I guess. So what... I mean, obviously, the, the reasons for this can't be boiled down to anything particularly simplistic. But is there an argument to suggest that the, the pressure to be male and the psychological impact of not living up to that pressure, is that a significant factor, do you think, in these in these statistics? Yes, I think it is. Um, I do think it's important to know that women uh, feel the same pressures to be female as men do to be male. Um, And in actual fact, uh, women are more likely to try and um, die by suicide. They're more likely to try and and take their own lives. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, men use methods that are more likely to succeed. And I think that ties in with masculine violence and uh, expectations of men to enact their anger in, in, in violent and bloody ways. I also think, of course, that, uh, that, that men do feel a greater pressure uh, to be strong and that when they're not strong, they feel bad for it. And, it, and men, are, men, are far, men are far less likely to, to seek help from others. Okay, so that I mean that's the the key point, isn't it? Because we we hear all the time this idea about men not talking about their feelings. Why do men find it so hard to open up? Is it as simple as not being willing to be seen as weak? Yeah, I think so. Unfortunately, when we're talking about this subject, often we are dealing with the cliches. I wish I had something revolutionary to say that we we haven't heard a hundred times before. But men don't like being weak, or more men than women don't feel comfortable with admitting weakness. You make the point in the book that um, this idea of, of sort of blaming men 
for not talking about their feelings being the 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 key component in that that high, high suicide rate as is is possibly sort of a victim blaming type thing. Yeah, Natasha Devon um MBE uh says that. She says a lot of the advertising campaigns and and all the rest of it it's all about getting men to talk but actually how about actually society changes and society doesn't put pressures on men to be strong and doesn't put pressures on men to be violent and put you know uh i do i think she's got a good point there i mean for all we talk about mental health and how it's good to talk uh and i do think it is good to talk but as a you know as someone who suffers with mental health myself two two things often happen when i do talk um firstly it's painful and it's the last thing i want to do but often if i'm honest i can i can mess stuff up when i talk about it because still some people don't want to don't want to hear it as bluntly as i'm willing to tell it um but of course we you know for all for all we've got to be careful of this well men must talk men must talk i do think that talking is an important part in reducing the stigma that's attached to mental health. So in a kind of wider, less individualistic, kind of wider social um, perspective, certainly the more people that talk about these kind of things, the better. Have, have we got to get better at listening as well? There's a, there's a fascinating section of this chapter that talks about um, the language that boys use to express that they're not feeling great and how we're not necessarily attuned to, to those messages are we when are we are we do we need to get better at picking them up yeah i mean okay some boys some boys don't talk but there are actually lots of boys that are talking but they're not necessarily using the language that we would expect to hear so yeah this study in australia found that actually a lot of the um so so one thing men are less likely to do is use medical jargon so men are far less likely than women to actually use the terms depression anxiety um, because they see those terms as indicative of weakness Uh, the other thing we do with mental health is often we have euphemisms for the the medical terms so we might say things like oh i've got butterflies in my stomach or Oh, I'm just I'm just feeling really uneasy. And again, studies have shown that those things are seen by men as kind of feminine phrases. So actually, what men will do is they will say stuff. Normally, it's stuff that you would expect to hear somebody say when talking about work. Uh, and this study looked at men who were depressed and men who had previously attempted suicide and asked them, what phrases would you commonly say uh, in an attempt to get help from people, what signposts were you offering? And the phrases were, I'm stressed, it's all just getting a bit on top of me, I've just had enough today. Even phrases like, oh, I'm just really tired. And you do hear men talk about these things, but we hear men talk about them and we assume they're talking about work, uh, but often it, it might not be the case. It, it really rings a, a bell for me that growing up, and I remember. Uh, one of my uncles who, uh, you know, mine, I worked down the pit for years and suddenly stopped going to work. And uh, as a kid, I, I was probably about like, 10 or something. I can remember saying to my uh, my gran, um, you know, how come my uncle's stopped going to work? And she said, oh, he's, he's got really bad nerves. 
and, and at the time I was just I, I, I thought it was, must be some kind of medical thing where you can't touch stuff and it was only like years and years later that it finally dawned on me that what they were talking about is depression and, and I'd heard this phrase this euphemistic phrase used so many times um, around adults who were blokes who were having time off and it was just bizarre that it was just something that you cannot come out and say, I've got depression. It's just weakness. It's funny, isn't it? Because even that phrase, he's got bad nerves, post-war, takes on this kind of masculine... shell shock type uh, thing, yeah. shell shock yeah. kind of thing, you know? Yeah. So, so actually, back, you know, your your uncle did find a way to articulate his feelings uh, or, or when people were talking about him, but albeit in this rather masculine way of, Oh, his nerves are shock. Yeah. Mm. Um, and yeah, with all the connotations of the war and, and, and stuff like that, yeah. It, it is interesting how this conversation has developed around depression in, in society. I mean, Mark, you you and I are of similar ages, we, we discovered <laughs> recently. I don't know about you, but I look back at my school days and I don't remember anybody having an overt anxiety issue or um, being collapsing in exams or in tests or anything like that. There was just this kind of get on with it attitude about all this kind of thing, and we've we have moved on. Are we suggesting that we've um, that we were? I'm not suggesting for a second that we were better at it in those days at all. I think we were better at hiding it. Are we now more openly I, I discussing the, these the, things? That hiding it is absolutely key, James. Uh, I, I remember that there was one girl in my my class, the secondary school, who just suddenly stopped coming to school, and it was never spoken about. It was never any kind of anxiety or anything. And again, it's only looking back that I thought it must have been something along those kind of lines. It's interesting you say that, James. You know, when when you boys were at school and that, um, there was no there was no chat about it. There was no chat about it when I was either. But you know, the highest suicide rate in the UK is among men aged forty five to forty nine. You know, I think the eighties the eighties changed everything. Like I'm looking, I've been looking about um, the attitudes of teachers, uh, and depending on the age of a teacher, they will have very differing attitudes to masculinity and mental health and what we're finding is that teachers that grew up or at least trained to be teachers in the 80s exhibit far more traditional attitudes towards um, homosexuality male mental health masculinity than people that had grown up prior to them can you clarify can you clarify exactly what you mean by traditional attitudes? Uh, attitudes that we consider to be maybe toxic, uh, like um, you know Edwardian kind of masculinity, and um, because you know the sixties and seventies. I know it's a cliche, but um, it was very progressive, uh, it, and the eighties um, politically, what was happening. Um, it, men were men, men had to be tough again, uh, and, and lots of teachers um, now. So, so I think if you went to school in the eighties, perhaps you, um, in terms of of those things, you're less. You 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 might possibly be less well off than somebody that went to school ten years before in the seventies. In terms of how you deal with these kind of um, uh, accepting that that actually you don't have to be. A certain way to be a man. I think the place where I grew up, we, we missed the progressive bit, and we just we just stayed in the Edwardian phase until until the eighties <laughs> it got really bad. <laughs> so, in in light of the fact then that we've got to get better at listening to our boys and identifying 
what it is they're saying. I, I don't want you to, to, to re-go through the book, really. People can read the chapter to find to look for those phrases that they should, should be getting. Um, but what other methods could we use to try and get boys to be a bit more open about how they're feeling? I think the evidence is still quite compelling, even now, about... Um kind of mental health literacy. I do think there needs to be more done in schools. The fact is that lots of men want to say stuff, but they just don't know how. Um, so it might be that a boy is really struggling with his mental health at school. You know, the teacher notices it. I don't know, maybe he punches a wall or he's crying. And everything's done as it would be done with a girl who was struggling. And then all of a sudden that boy is in the office with the pastoral head of whatever... And then the teacher says, right, tell me what you're feeling. And he's never had any practice in, in that. And he's got all these things he wants to say, and he just can't. And it puts the teacher in a difficult position, because, of course, we all know that you shouldn't ask leading questions in these type of things. And so you're kind of at this stalemate. I went to this wonderful charity in Liverpool uh, last year called James's Place. It's a place where when men go to uh, A&E waiting rooms and express the fact that they're feeling suicidal or they or they make a 999 call um, talking about the fact that they, they, might, they think they might take their own lives, um, rather than going to this kind of sterile waiting room in a hospital, they get referred to this place. And it's basically a big old... It's almost like a mansion. It's amazing. Um, it's got like eight bedrooms, but each bedroom has been converted into this really nice kind of living room area. And in each one of these is a therapist, there's a cooking station. And the men go straight there. It's comfortable. They can bring their families. Um, and they can talk with a therapist. And it's just a really calm, nice environment. One of the amazing things I saw there, and I'll put a link or I'll put the photo on our Twitter uh, site, is they have these cards that men can that you just literally draw each card as you would a, an ordinary deck of cards and on each of these cards is written something so there are a load of things to do with physical symptoms so it might be you'd pick the first card and it says i keep sweating and the man uh, can either choose to select it and put it on the yes pile or discount it it might say i'm feeling really anxious my chest feels tight my toes feel sweaty or um you know uh so they've got physical symptoms then obviously um stuff about their emotional state i feel like i want to cry i feel like i want to cry but i can't i'm angry about someone i want to hurt myself and so actually the guy doesn't have to say anything he can literally just put these cards and all of a sudden this therapist has got this wonderful map in front of them of everything that's gone on this really sounds like the sort of thing I wish I'd had for the last 13 years of pastoral work that I've been doing. I think I would have got to the bottom of boys' issues a lot quicker if we'd have been able to take the conversation out of the equation because that's what's, it's, that, it's, it's, it's what you refer to in the book as emotional mutism, isn't it? Yeah, emotional mutism, yeah. The only emotion that we can externalise is anger. Um, but, you know, anyway, talking about these cards, it wouldn't be difficult for somebody, somebody listening right now, you know that that knows a bit about this to produce them for schools and put them on Twitter for free so we can all use them. You know, schools can create these things, um, and so long as I, you know, I do think they, 
I do think there needs to be a process of, of checking with somebody that's an expert in the area to make sure that they're okay and they're not, um, you know, they're not going to exacerbate any problems or, or provide any potential further danger. I think it's a brilliant um, thing. So, in, in the interest then of, of trying to provide some solutions, um, not that there are any easy ones. One, and one other thing you discuss in the book is um, is tender coaching. What? How would how would you explain tender coaching to? Uh, the listening public. yeah yeah so, so tender coaching um it struck me that that in many schools for many boys because of the associations of, of physical sport with masculinity pe teachers still have um, massive respect massive influence over the boys there um but often not all the time of course not but sometimes with um sport can come these quite stereotypical and and maybe even quite negative ideas of, of masculinity um, about physical prowess as being the number one thing to strive for um, aggression and uh, resilience, but, and, and I mean resilience, not in a good way, but you know, you get injured. Well, you do not cry. You just get up and you keep going. Yeah. Th- often this can happen, but I, I just started talking to a load of PE teachers on Twitter that were telling me all these amazing things they're doing um, with their sports to kind of nurture these kind of tender, really positive, really open aspects of masculinity. The one, the, the best thing I ever heard uh, was a guy called David Sharkey. He's a rugby coach. And he was talking to me about when his boys go onto the training pitch and they can either go underneath a red flag, an orange flag or a green flag. Now, you go on the, under the green flag onto the training pitch if you're feeling okay. But if you've had a bit of a rough day, um, you know, you're not feeling great uh, in terms of your headspace, you go for the orange flag. If you've got like some pretty serious worries about your mental health, you go under the red flag. And what it means, again, there's no talking involved. The boys just go on the pitch. The coaches can see who's going where. And what happens is often... You know, the boys that are going under the orange flag, they'll look after each other during the training pitch. So, you know, they'll have all the healthy competition and the banter, but perhaps the kid that went under the orange flag, when the ball goes out of play, one of his mates will go up to him and just say, are you okay? And obviously, the you know, the boys that go through the red flag, the, the coaches can can notice that and, and they can pull them aside after the training session and, and, and put whatever needs to be put in place into place. Uh, it's it's the sporting equivalent of the cards, isn't it? Take the conversation out of it, um, and 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 allow them to express it in a different way. And I suppose the other thing that it, it allows it, it because being on sports teams can be pr- pretty tough in terms of that banter. That banter can be scathing if it protects kids from that. If 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 they see kid go through a red flag and they think, well, actually. I'm going to leave him alone for this session and we won't take the mickey when he blasts it over the bar or yep. all that sort of stuff. That's crucial, yeah, isn't it's it? wonderful. And, and you know, this guy's taking the kids back into the dressing room after games and he's saying, how do you feel during that game? Do you feel, did you feel angry at any point? Yeah, I felt really angry and that's why we won. Okay, so anger was positive here. Have you ever thought about times in your life where you felt angry? But it hasn't. And he's using the kind of the emotions that these boys are feeling in a competitive arena on that sports pitch and he's always bringing it back at some point in that like that debrief after the game or to to an area um outside of the sporting arena you know and so the boys are boys are talking about their emotions and they're discussing them 
almost without really realising it. What's beautiful about that, from from my point of view, is that it's providing this really safe space, this really safe arena to to be able to express these feelings, even if it's not using language. To to admit that you're struggling is something that's that's particularly difficult. And and, and as adults, I mean, we're talking about mental health now. Um, one of the reasons why why more men, particularly of my kind of age, my kind of era. Um, don't talk out about it, is that there are real risks to doing so. I mean, you, you think about, for example, if, if we were going to go to a new school and you, you fill in on a job application as a teacher, uh, do you have mental health problems and you fill it in, there's always this little thing at the back of your mind. It, it, is there a black mark going to be held against me? And, and those kind of things. And this is something that boys face. Exactly. I mean, on Twitter, I'm, I try and be vocal about my mental health problems, which is fine until I'm in a... I'm in an episode and then I'm taken to Twitter and yeah and of course I delete it and I worry about you know how what people I don't want people to think I'm weak I don't want people to think I'm uh, a wet blanket and stuff and and I'm a 34 year old adult you know and whatever I'm feeling now um, is much much more intense for for kids you're incredibly brave, though, and I, and I always admire the, the way that you are so honest and, and, and raw about it. And for me, it's something that, as, uh, yeah, as, 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 an, as an adult, as someone who's, who's suffered with mental health issues over the years, I, I, I find it incredibly refreshing that you're brave enough to do it uh, in a way that I've, I've always found it very difficult to do. And, and I, I think it, it needs people like you to be open um, not just in terms of talking about mental health issues, but in terms of talking about emotions in front of kids for these kind of things to change. They, they need to see people like us making those kind of open statements about feeling down and so on. Can we go back to the, the gates for the moment? Because I, I want to play devil's advocate for a second. How do you bring this sort of idea in without it being immediately trampled on by the toxic members of the group? Um, because I think if, if you have start getting established sort of alpha males in there that are going to start trampling down these sorts of ideas, you're never going to be able to break through it. Is that fair, or, or am I being um, pessimistic? No, I, th- I think that's a perfectly reasonable um, concern to have. Um, alpha males are always going to be a problem, aren't they? What I think my question is really is how do we make these sorts of things acceptable to students who have that? heightened sense of masculinity i've been spoken to a lot of these kind of lads often when you get them on their own they are feeling just as much pressure and and they feel a lot of strain from having to live up to this role as well you know there's, there's a lad that i speak to frequently uh, and he, he he'll do stupid things and and it's to try to impress the the rugby mates and he's kind of seen as the alpha male, but he feels awful having done these ridiculous things. And it, the, the strain that it puts on him is, is just as much as some of the others at times as well. And I talked about last week, uh, you know, this hegemonic masculinity, this masculinity that is centred around what we might call traditional desirable aspects of man- masculinity, physical strength, uh, aggression, power, dominance over the group, violent when it matters. Um Actually, that, that, that strain of masculinity, um, although it's hegemonic and the most desirable, only very few people have it. And, and because of that, and I, I've already said this last week, but it's fragile. So those alpha males, you know, there's a lot of pressure on them to maintain it um, because it can be snatched away at any, <laughs> any moment you know, um, by, by somebody else. 
that's stronger or, or so we it's very easy to see these boys isn't it as the naughty boys or the idiots or the and of course you know kids are human i've always said this and um if you've got some swaggering macho sexist teenager um swanning around the school like he owns the place with all the best will in the world it can be difficult to get in the mindset of like that kid needs help when actually he's a bit unpleasant but we've got to we've really got to make an effort um because it's our job um and and we've got we've got to try and find ways of helping them um okay i mean that was really good lads i think um i'd very much like to urge people to go and uh, reread this chapter again because it I rereading it in, in preparation for this podcast it really focused the mind a little bit particularly I think as we're about to go back to school from this sort of uh, lockdown period should we look at some listener questions um uh, there's a couple of really interesting ones that I want to explore, and I think this first one is going to create a bit of discussion, particularly amongst the three of us as English teachers. Um, as English teachers, what books or texts would you teach to start a dialogue about mental health? Matt opens this chapter talking about Romeo and Juliet, don't you? Uh, and the view of Romeo. And, and I have spent the best part of 17 years of teaching, teaching Romeo as a lovesick teen bit wet um with those sorts of things and never and so i think to start to start off the debate about this question matt do you want to give us your interpretation of romeo as a character i think romeo is the classic victim of masculinity he resorts to physical violence to avenge the death of his friend um when he does bear himself emotionally people that are supposed to be looking after him like friar lawrence tell him um, was it thy tears are womanish um, but actually I find that a lot of English teachers criticise Romeo for this fact a lot of um, I don't know if it's them trying to make Romeo trendy or somehow they're trying to be down with the kids but I hear a lot of or over my eight or nine years teaching I've heard lots of English teachers say oh god all Romeo does is talk about his feelings Oh, he's so fickle, blah 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 blah. Two things there, right? He talks about his feelings. That's good. That's a good thing. Second thing, this whole thing with him being fickle, right? So <laughs> this I don't even know if this is about mental health, but we're keeping this in, James, because it's a very important point, right? People slag him off because he thinks he's in love with Rosaline, but then he falls in love with Juliet. Does anyone ever know that they're in love until they're in love? So maybe it, like it's perfectly reasonable for him to think he's in love with Rosaline, then meet someone else and think, actually, no, this is what love is. I, I mean, I, I, I agree. Um, but I'd also say I, I feel sorry for Tybalt as well. He gets a bad press. He's kind of just seen as this kind of antagonistic trouble cause, uh, you know, hell-bent on violence. I've taught, traditionally, as a stereotypical view, Romeo's a lovesick teen but kind of does the right thing out of honour. Tybalt, he's just an ass. It's not that simple. For me, all the male characters in Romeo and Juliet, are, are, are pretty, particularly the young, younger ones, are driven by this, this inner conflict. And this inner conflict reflects the external conflict between the two houses. And it's very much, do I stand and fight and prove my honour and 
or do I retreat and, and preserve my life and, and, and follow love instead of hate? And, and that's something that, that, that's in, with Inside Romeo. And, and I, know we, I know we're rattling on about English stuff again, but, but this is something that, that is within most men who are worried about their image. You know, do, do they fo- follow for, for feelings and emotions or do they go for kind of um, being looked up to and respected? I think that was going to be that was kind of at the heart uh, of, of of what was going to be my, my follow up question. I think it does the questioner here kind of miss the point a little bit in that most texts will actually contain something of this nature that you can explore. It's just that for years we haven't been doing it as well. Yeah, I mean, I want to say about Romeo and Juliet. I, I mean, for years I taught it as a play about young love. Actually, it's far more than that. It's a it's it's essentially a play about masculinity. In fact, I would go as far to say it's a it's a play about masculinity in the year twenty twenty, <laughs> you know. Um, but 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 also it's a play about suicide. Um, and on the English curriculum and down at Key Stage Three as well, you've got. So, so let's take the two two. Let's take GCSE. You can there can be kids going to school, and in year ten and eleven they'll do Romeo and Juliet, and they'll do an inspector course both of which are plays about suicide. You know, the media, right, the mainstream press have to follow very, very strict guidelines about reporting on suicide, about discussing suicide, and yet you get teachers like myself or or teachers coming straight out of their PGCE teaching two plays about suicide to a bunch of 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds with absolutely no idea as to how you should actually discuss suicide, how you should approach suicide, um, particularly when you're talking about it with young people. Um, So going back, I guess, to the original question, which was, should we be teaching certain texts um, to help kids better deal with these issues? The texts are already there. We just need to realise how best to teach them in a way that makes them more than just texts, but actually texts that can help them with their own mental health issues should they arise or should they already exist. Can we widen this out to other subjects? Can we, ha- can we take a moment to, to take our English teacher hats off? You can't be shoehorning this stuff in. Perhaps in history, but of course... Um, of course, in things like um, PSHE and stuff. Sociology. I do think well. more stuff needs to be done. Sociology. I do think if we're talking about mental health, right, and we want to educate kids about mental health, it's not even it's not even necessarily about the teaching of it as, as a subject. It's about all teachers, regardless of what subject they teach, demonstrating and modelling positive mental health um, behaviour. Okay, what you've what you've done there, what you've done there, Matt, is is cleverly predict what the next listener question is going to be. So let me ask that, and then I'll let you carry on. Um, the question is: How do we frame mental health support in a way that teenage boys don't view as weird or odd, or as a sign of them being a failure, or shameful, or uncool, or all those other things that are messing with kids' heads? Um, one person's actually already responded to that tweet. It's lovely to see the debate forming already in our comments section. Um, and their response was to, to, to make it modelled by a male teacher they look up to. Is that the answer? Or is it, if we've got to take a, a, a wider whole school approach? Yeah, the, the male role model theory is, is really flawed in many ways. This, this idea that, that boys will only look up to a male role model. 
when it comes to improving their academic um, attitudes and, 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 and in, indeed narrowing the gap. But actually, when it comes to, to male role models, the, the one area that the research suggests that, that boys do need um, some male figure to speak to is when it comes down to personal issues and, and often things that, 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 that might be very personal to them in terms of things like uh, puberty or sexual issues and things like that. So that I think that is one area that would be particularly important. Uh, apart from that, the, the research shows that it doesn't really, they don't really care about that. They just want someone who's kind and caring and understanding. But that might be one specific issue from a pastoral point of view where it's very important that they can go and speak to a man. Mark's right. When I say modelling positive mental health behaviours, I mean talking about your mental health to kids. And I don't mean, obviously, revealing your deepest, darkest problems. Um, as an English teacher, as a humanities teacher, you'll be, you'll be privileged, all right? Because there will be subject matter that has um, an emotional impact on you. So, for example, if I'm reading a book that I find sad, I might... Um, I would go so far as say I'd cry. I would never cry, lads. Um, but of course, I well up, and and the kids go, Are "You crying, sir?" I go, "Yeah, I am." I mean, th- yeah. At the risk of being spoiler tastic, there are certain texts that always get me. Um, of mice and men, for example, is the one that that regularly gets me choked as I'm reading that final chapter. Yeah, but I also think other subjects. You know, uh, uh, imagine you're a maths teacher and you're on playground duty. And you had a rubbish weekend. It's Monday. You're doing your rubbish playground duty. Kid comes up. How you doing, sir? I don't think there's anything wrong with going. Do you know what? I've had a bit of a, a bit of a sad weekend actually, and I felt a bit sad. Um, today I've, you know, I'm back in school, but it's really nice to talk to you. And actually, talking to you is making me feel a bit better. You know, yeah, I don't, we don't do that at all well, do we? No, and I, but why not? Um, I don't, you know, I, I personally don't think there's there's anything wrong with that. Uh, and I, I think it's modelling openness. Mod, mod, modelling openness is actually a really key phrase, isn't it? But other things, it doesn't always have to be um, sad stuff. Um, you know, I often see female teachers that have had babies coming in with their baby and um, the kids are all swanning around and the teacher's telling them, oh, it's really tired, but she's so beautiful and I love her so much. And everyone's like, oh, I miss, I miss. Um I don't see too many, you know, male teachers who've had kids just saying, "Oh, I've had a, you know, I've, I really love my, I've just had a, I've just had a baby, and um, God, I haven't known a love like it." You know, do you know? Do you know what I mean? Like, I think there are opportunities to just be honest. I can't stand it when people bring in their babies. Can you? <laughs> I can't. I cannot stand it. You, you you go to school to get rid of them, don't you? <laughs> I did an assembly recently uh, where I talked about the change in me and the priorities within my life changing as a result of having children. And it was it was assembly about responsibility and that sort of thing. But I actually had a, a bigger response to that assembly in terms of people coming up and talking to me afterwards than I had for a long time. And it was because I showed pictures of my kids as babies and 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 kids were interested in in that part of my life and how that had affected me and I was getting some interesting questions particularly about the fact that I've got twins and how they respond to each other and and that sort of thing but can I can I play devil's advocate now when you were talking about that assembly and or talking through that assembly and that experience and and that life-changing moment were you talking about uh your responsibility or the way it's made you grow up because 
you have to provide a blah 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 which is all great did you ever actually talk about your emotions no I, I definitely did talk about my emotions I, I did I did do the whole changing responsibility yeah, thing, but I definitely course, had that moment where I, where I said uh, when I held these kids in my arms for the first time my world changed because I now realised that they were the most important things that existed there was there was nothing else to it was there that's amazing but th- this is beautiful to hear and, and I know that it's not always um, you know the first few months or so and so can be a bit of a nightmare um, but I'm, I'm just thinking back to what we were talking about at the, at the start and I know we were being a bit silly when we were talking about our kind of um, putting on these real real men attitudes in inverted commas um, but when you think back to one of the reasons why we're not very good at DIY and our, our parents are our, da- our dads are is that we they dedicated their time to that while they didn't do a great deal of childcare, did they? I mean, if you're being honest, if you think about it, we're we're hands-on dads, and maybe that's maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's why we're so bloody useless at putting shelves up because we spend time looking after the kids and and, and reading to them and, and doing all those kind of things. Maybe there's some optimism there. But Mark, how come your wife puts does all the stuff you do with the kids and can still put up a shelf? <laughs> because she's because she's a better person than me that goes without saying <laughs> yeah 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 okay um, right. <laughs> uh, further reading um, we want people to go away and learn more about this where, where would we send them um, I think Natasha Devon MBE, I think her book. It's the A to Z of mental health, or or something. It's it's a it's a good book. People should check it out. Um, I also think that I think that all teachers who are um, about to teach a topic that deals with suicide, I think everybody needs to go to the Samaritans website and just search on their media guidelines for discussing suicide because literally um, they're transferable over to teachers. So, for example. You know, little things like you, you shouldn't say the phrase committing suicide. Uh, and I will apologise if, if I've said that in today's episode. I've tried not to. Um, but there are all sorts of little things that we just need to be aware of. Uh, so I, I would strongly recommend teachers check out the media guidelines on, on talking about suicide. That's really good advice. Can I suggest also, uh, this is not further reading, but the, the, the charity that you talked about earlier, Mark, um, what, what was the name of it? Because maybe maybe we could chuck them a few quid instead. Yeah, I'd really love it if people could donate uh, to James's place. It's James's place in Liverpool, uh, and like I said, they're a charity that um, they built this 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 purpose built house uh, for men, for young men who are feeling suicidal to visit. Uh, in 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 times of crisis, and they've got an on hands uh, therapists there uh, to basically save lives. So um, I think if we put a link to their donation page on on Twitter, that'd be excellent. And I'd love it if people just just a quid, just a quid. Every, anyone that listens, a quid. You know, free quid, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> free quid. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you to everybody uh, for listening and for following us and for sharing the episode links on Twitter. Please keep doing all that. Keep uh, tweeting us the feedback because we do we do read it all um, and it does uh, mean a great deal to us. Um, gentlemen, that's been a, a fascinating discussion again. Brilliant. What are we doing next time? What is it next time? Next time it's uh, Expectations, I believe, uh, Chapter 5, Expectations. And then we thought we'd do a little bonus episode, didn't we? We might look at the 
the uh, the method of writing this book. Oh, yeah. Little yeah, that would be fun. Brief little bonus episode, but we'll get episode five done first, and then at the halfway point, we might chuck that. It's a bit like with Nail and I. <laughs> oh, with Nail and with Nail. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, thanks everybody for listening. Follow us on Twitter. Subscribe on iTunes. Uh, let us know what you think, and uh, we will see you again next time. Cheers, everyone. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye.